You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Morning, church. My name is Cheryl, and I'll be reading scripture today from 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 15, and 19 through 22. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gabeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mastered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They, encamped, they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. When the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of God and Gilead. Saul was still a Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mastered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I still have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gabeah of Benjamin. Verses 19 through 22. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make themselves swords of spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of, the and a, third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. These are the true words of the living God. Good morning, church. My name is Trent. Very happy to be preaching to you this morning. Um, quick fact, I don't know if some of the new folks might not know this, but ECP has interest groups. Uh, and there's actually a football interest group, that's soccer for the Americans in here, 
Um, and I've learned recently that the football interest group has had some of the ladies from ECP showing up, and they are dominating the boys. <laughs> so, if you're a lady here and you want to get you want to get in on the action, feel free to talk to Jost. He's the one that leads uh, the football group. All right, we are continuing this morning the book of First Samuel. I'll give us some context for where we're at. The people of Israel in the last few passages they have asked God for a king. And God gives them Saul. And the last judge of Israel, his name is Samuel, in the last passage in chapter 12, what he's done is he's given a farewell address to the people. And this was a rebuke where he tells the Israelites, uh, or sorry, he rebukes the Israelites for rejecting God and for asking for a king. And he urges them to continue in obedience to the Lord. He reminds them that they are God's chosen people who will not be forsaken by the Lord. And as Perch helped us to see last week, the main takeaway was that God has shown his faithfulness to the people, even when they were unfaithful to him. Now, for our passage today, uh, what we're going to see is this continuing feud between the Israelites and the Philistines. And I actually want to start by going to the end of the passage to give us just a feel for what this feud looks like, the state of this feud. So I'll just summarize uh, chapter 19 through 22. So what's happened is... There is no blacksmith in all of Israel. And what that means is that the Israelites have to actually go down to the Philistines, their arch enemies, to sharpen their axes and their sickles. And then on the day of battle, that means that there is no sword or spear among the Israelites except for with Jonathan and Saul. Okay? So, this is like if the ECP football interest group went and played Liverpool FC, and showed up without soccer balls, but with rugby balls. And then to make it worse, they go over to Liverpool FC and say, our balls are flat. Can you pump them up for us? Okay, this is what's happening here. They don't even have the proper tools to fight this battle. They, they don't even have weapons. What's happening is Israel is totally outmatched by the Philistines, and this is the context that we enter into in this passage. And it's actually a hint of Saul's leadership, or actually the lack thereof. Saul is a core character in this passage. We're going to spend a lot of time on him. I'll, be, I'll admit, he's an easy character to pick on. I think uh, Perch has given him a pretty hard time in the last few weeks. Um, but for today, I want us to try to take him seriously. Let's try to relate to him if we can, because Saul is going to be this example of what it looks like when we follow the logic of our hearts. What I mean, my, what I mean by that is uh, the, the reasoning or the natural way that we do things, our tendencies, our logic. And in contrast, I'd like to see if we can just scratch the surface of the way, the logic of God's heart. And what does that mean for us? So my sermon has three points. The logic of man, the logic of God, and the logic of God in a man. So my first point, the logic of man. Again, Saul is going to be an example for us of how we humans tend to operate. And I want to use an illustration for this. So just imagine for me that you are sitting at a table and in front of you, in a figurative sense, is a very detailed blueprint of your life. So you can think about like a blueprint with a house on it, but figuratively it's your life, right? And it's a technical drawing, so admittedly it's complicated, it's complex, but even still you examine it and 
you have opinions on how it's supposed to look, what, what's supposed to go where. In other words, despite the complexity, you have a preferred design for the way that your life is supposed to look. Now, Saul, he's got one of these blueprints, of course. So let's see what happens when that design comes under pressure. His first response is seeking praise. And we'll see this in verses 2 through 4. So Saul has 3,000 soldiers. 2,000 of them are with him, and 1,000 of them are with his son Jonathan. Now, Jonathan, not Saul, he takes the initiative to go and attack the Philistines, and he defeats one of their garrisons, again, with half the men of, of his father. But Saul then goes around Israel, blowing his trumpet and boasting of this defeat. And the people all praise him for it, not Jonathan. He takes full credit. He's posting all the photos on Instagram, and he's photoshopped himself into all the battle scenes. He's like tagging all the cities and villages of Israel, trying to get their attention, trying to get followers. And we see an early indicator in this passage that Saul craves the praise and acceptance of the people. So this is the first response, seeking praise. Second response is seeking control. And we'll see this in verses five through, five through nine. The Philistines, understandably, they're not happy that their garrison has been destroyed, so they put together an enormous army to attack Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore. And the Israelites, they come up with this brilliant tactic in response. Play dead. They play dead. It says in verse 6, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes, rocks, in tombs, and in cisterns. And then in verse 8, we see that Samuel, the judge that I spoke of earlier, he's supposed to come help them, but he doesn't arrive. So the situation is dire. In verse 7, it says that the people followed Saul trembling. In verse 8, it says that they were scattering from him. So the people are scared out of their minds. Saul is losing soldiers. The Philistine army is just massive, and Samuel isn't there. So Saul, he takes matters into his own hands, and he performs the sacrifices himself. And as he would later explain in verse 12, he needs the favor of God. It seems like a noble task, but it's not, because this is not the kind of faith that is submissive to God's plans, but rather it's a last-ditch effort to whip up some miracle for God to help him in his situation. But aside from the heart behind it, Saul performing these sacrifices that it refers to, it's wrong simply for two reasons. Number one, God's law said that only priests were to perform such sacrifices. Saul is not a priest. And two, it's wrong because Samuel is God's mouthpiece. He is a, a prophet, a priest, and a judge, meaning that he helps to bring the word and the will of God to the king and to the people. And so... Listening to him is akin to listening to the voice of God. So not waiting for Samuel and performing the sacrifices, Saul has disobeyed God's commands and he shut out the voice of God. Saul wants to control his, out, his outcomes. He wants to do it his way. He doesn't ask for direction from God. He just seeks the favor of the Lord. And even the way he goes about that, we can see that it needs to be done his way. What about our third one? 
making excuses. This is the last response from Saul. Verses 10 through 12. In verse 10, it says, As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. So Samuel arrives just as Saul is finishing up the sacrifices. I mean, poor Saul. He's just got the worst timing. Like the embers are still burning, the aroma's in the air, and Samuel shows up. Like it just could not be worse timing. And then in verse 11, this is how Samuel responds. He says, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Okay, hear me out. Saul, he may be onto something. Let's just try to break down his reasoning, his logic a bit, okay? So he says, the people were scattering from me. Samuel, I lack the resources that I need to get the job done. He says, you did not come with the days appointed. Samuel, you didn't show up. And lastly, he says, the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. Samuel, have you ever been to the beach? Have you seen how much sand is on the seashore? That is how many Philistines were coming up against me. The odds were stacked against me. So he says, I forced myself. I had no choice. I had to do it. Now, Saul would call this defending himself, but I would call this a masterclass in excuse making. It's got three great things. Number one, I wasn't given the proper resources. Number two, other people screwed up, not me. And number three, the best one, I was just a victim of my circumstances. I had to intervene, I had to do it my way. Now, again, we're being nice to Saul, right? He's not aloof and unintelligent, he isn't oblivious. He's not like off chasing some butterfly when Samuel shows up and he's like, what? What did I do wrong? That's, that's not what happens here. He knows exactly what he's done. He's crafty. He has a reasoning and a logic to his response. Saul is smarter than we give him credit for, but that does not mean that he is faithful or obedient. He's not someone to be envied. So we've seen three examples then of what it looks like to do it Saul's way. Seeking praise, seeking control, and making excuses. Let me share an example from my own life of what this looks like, how I can identify with Saul. Um, in university, I studied accounting. And in my first year, they make you take all these general education classes. And I find myself in this class, Microbiology 111, Microorganisms and Human Disease. Let me repeat, I was an accounting major, okay? I had no business being in this class. And funny enough, um, one week, Callie, my wife, uh, at the time we were dating, and she came to visit me. She went to a different school, and bless her heart, she came to this class with me, just to spend time with me. And it's one of those massive classes where there's like three or 400 people, huge auditorium, so we sat in the back, sitting right next to each other. I'll be honest with you, I slept the whole class. Not saying a lot, because I'm not a sleepy person. And I wake up at the end, and there's a pop quiz. I'm sure the professor saw me and was like, I'm going to nail this guy. So 
I'm looking at this piece of paper, and I'm like, I don't know the answers to any of these questions. So I start to look at Callie. I'm like, you were awake during the class? She didn't give me any answers. But long story short, I was not doing well in this class. I'm pretty sure I failed the first exam. Okay, And so I'm looking at this class, this situation, and I'm saying to myself, what am I doing here? I'm in accounting. I've got this future in business. I'm going to ace all these accounting classes. Yeah, right. And here I am stuck in this microbiology class. I'm going to ruin my grade point average in this class. And so I took matters into my own hands. And I took some shortcuts in that class that I am not proud of. And that was wrong. It was wrong. But I told myself that it was the logical thing to do. I told myself I had to do it. Maybe you can identify with Saul in some way. Some of us might be living in sin, and we've got the defense at the ready. It's like right on our hip, quick draw. We've got the logic figured out. We've got the circumstances down pat. We know exactly what to say. Maybe we've even deceived ourselves. We're good at this. We've built out the logic. When things go well, we seek credit. When they don't, we try to control the outcomes. And when we can't, we want to blame anyone but ourselves. It's like we're critiquing that blueprint. We're starting to sneak in some of our own changes here and there. We're trying to make it look the way that we want it to look. These are not just the logical methods of dealing with life, my friends. There's something more sinister at play here. The, the focus of our hearts is often self-preservation and self-promotion. And we see a strong hint of this with Saul, don't we? When the people are trembling and scared, Saul is more concerned that the people are scattering from him than he is concerned about the people and their safety. He even says to Samuel, he says, the Philistines will come down against me. He's self-focused. This is the logic of man. Some might call it survival instinct. The word of God calls it sin. It's rejecting God's way to do it our way. Now, I want to acknowledge that for a select few of us, there might be a a genuine struggle to understand God's commands or, or why some of his commands in particular even exist in the first place. For example, I have a friend who believes in God, but he um, says that he just doesn't see why some of God's commands are there, and so he'd prefer not to follow those ones. This is a real response. Or, Or more generally, maybe we're just questioning God. Maybe with this passage, we're asking the question, why is God so harsh to Saul? We have these questions in our mind about God. So let's, let's move on. Maybe there's something in this passage that can help us to better understand God in these areas. That brings us to my second point, the logic of God. Now, of course, we're going to approach this topic humbly. It won't be comprehensive, but maybe there's just enough here to help us to form a, a better picture of God's character. Start with me in verse 13. Samuel is responding to Saul's act of performing these sacrifices, and he says, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. So we see two things referenced here. Number one, God's commands, and number two, his promises. 
Let's see if these two things can help us to better understand God's ways, God's logic. So number one, God's commands. Well, we see them in the Bible. Maybe we perceive them as do this, uh, don't do that. And it brings us back to that question. Why is it so important to keep God's commands? Well, if we move back one chapter to chapter 12 in Samuel's farewell address, this is, what, this is what Samuel says. He says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. God's commands seek to protect us. His commands are there because he loves us and he cares for our well-being. This is all over the Bible, this, this kind of an explanation. In Psalm 19, for example, which is written by David, the very man that God would choose to replace Saul, he has this magnificent language to describe God's commands. Let me just name like three verses here. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. By them, by his commands, your servant is warned, and keeping them, there is great reward. God's commands are good. But we shouldn't take too narrow or self-focused a view on this. God wasn't just telling Saul that he would be well. He wasn't just speaking of his well-being. He was speaking to all the people, wasn't he? God's commands are not only intended for your well-being, but they're also intended for the well-being of creation. And frankly, that's something that I don't think that not all of us can fully understand. But maybe just let me try, okay, with the illustration of the blueprint. So imagine that you're sitting at this table and you're critiquing this blueprint of your life and God is sitting next to you, okay? And you say to him, you know, God, I don't like that screw. It's ugly. I just want to get rid of it. And God might respond, well, my child, that screw holds up that bracket, and that bracket holds up that beam. And that beam holds up that floor, and sitting on that floor is the toilet that you sit on once a day, every day, and if that floor fails, you are going to be very unhappy. And some of the people that are going to have to come save you and clean up your mess are also going to be unhappy. So it's better if we don't mess with the screw. It's for your well-being, and it's for the well-being of the people around you. Now, if we remember back to our tendency for self-preservation and self-promotion, we might start to see how our, our vision can be clouded on this topic. It is quite a presumptuous thing to follow God's commands only on our terms. Implicitly, it's saying that we know more than God. We aren't fully capable of seeing how good God's commands truly are. For us to believe that his commands are good, I think maybe we need to dig a little bit deeper and understand how trustworthy he is. Is, is God trustworthy? Can his word be trusted? And this brings us to the second point, God's promises. So back in chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, again, it says, if you will not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, it will be well. We read that already. But then it says, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. 
So we see this line again, it will be well. And it's not just an indication of the purpose of God's commands. It is a commitment, isn't it? It's a promise. If you serve the Lord and obey him, it will be well. That's what he says. Instead, Saul has royally messed things up. No pun intended. So the other end of God's promise is also true. The hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So the result of this is then expanded upon in chapter 13. We go back to chapter 13 and verses 13 and 14. Samuel says, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. God is true to his word. And sadly, there is an opportunity cost to disobeying God, to turning aside from his promises. Saul leaves behind something good in doing that. Only after Saul rejected God does he see the full picture of what was on offer to him, the establishment of his kingdom forever. Now, at this point in the Bible, God has fulfilled so many of his promises. He promised Abraham all the descendants of Israel and the land that they reside in. He promised the Israelites deliverance from Egypt, which Saul reminded them of in in the last chapter. Saul is the king of a nation that is literally built on all the promises of God. The Bible, for us, is a record, a perfect record of God delivering on all of his promises. God is trustworthy. But Saul, he has a choice, and unfortunately, sadly, he doesn't grasp the right side of God's promises. So that's God's promises and God's commands, these two things. Is that a complete picture of God? Well, no, of course not. We should be careful not to be, uh, to see God as transactional. It's not as simple as saying God's commands followed minus his commands rejected. If greater than zero equals God's promises fulfilled for you. It's not that simple. God's commands are there for our protection and our flourishing. And he is faithful to deliver on his promises to those who would receive them. But, and these are wonderful truths, but it's only part of the logic of God. God's focus is deeper than that. He is relational. God is a person. And this is the last aspect that I want to get to in this second point, God's focus. In this passage, I think the true focus of God was actually on Saul's heart. Saul's rejection of God's commands, his forgetfulness of God's promises, they were just symptoms, right? They're just indicators of his heart being far from God. His heart was seeking after the people and it was seeking after himself. But God tells us that the heart is what he's looking for. It's what he seeks. It's his focus. He wants relationship with Saul. He wants relationship with us. In verse 14, it says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart because you, Saul, have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So indeed, we see here that God cares about the heart. It's right there. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. But this verse also creates a direct correlation between alignment with God's heart, or sorry, alignment with, um, yeah, with God's heart and following his commands. They go hand in hand because it, it grieves God when we don't follow his commands because 
it means that our hearts are not with him. We're actually turning away from relationship with him. So let me go back to the blueprint. The designer, God, sits next to you. The curator of all the materials that he's going to build with, the builder himself, he sits right next to you. He's designed all of this for you, specifically for you, and he's going to build the actual thing. It's not just the blueprint. He's the builder. Behind all those, those numbers and the drawings, the lines, is intention for you, specifically for you, a loving intention. And we just question the design. We make demands on how it should be different, and we take a permanent marker and we write all over it. Our heart is in the design, not in the designer. As I wrap up this point, maybe the question still lingers of why God punished Saul. Well, on the one hand, God has indeed enacted his justice upon Saul. He's stamped him with this expiration date that we're going to see come to fulfillment later uh, in some of the passages to come. But Saul isn't the only one who's failed in 1 Samuel, remember. The Israelites did also. They rejected God as their king, and here they are, it says, trembling as they follow this leader, Saul, that they have chosen. Yet, God's justice upon Saul is also a marker of his grace towards his people. This brings me to the last point. So you see, the the downfall of Saul does not just rid the Israelites of a bad leader, but it actually began the uprising of a good one, King David. David, as we're going to see in the chapters to follow, was the immediate fulfillment of verse 14, a man after God's own heart. And isn't it interesting that God doesn't look at Saul and say, well, that was a failed experiment. Um, Now what I think I need is some mindless servant, some pawn who's just going to do my bidding. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I need a man after my own heart. And David comes along, this thoughtful, emotional, heartfelt guy that we see writing many of the songs and the poems that we see in the Psalms. The answer was not someone better in a worldly sense. The answer is a man who loves God and therefore follows his commands for the good of the people, not for the good of himself. Now, David's heart was not perfect, of course. As we go through Samuel, we'll see that. He doesn't always follow God's commands, but he was a man that was quick to repent quick to remember God's promises. He had a heart for the Lord. But this should move us into deeper thought about what it looks like for someone to truly be after God's own heart. And while verse 14 indeed points to David, its greater fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God's kindness to the people and the downfall of Saul takes on even more beauty because it brought about the uprising of the true everlasting king. Jesus, after all, comes from the line of David, not the line of Saul. Now let's just take a moment to trace back through God's commands, his promises, and his focus to see how Jesus measures up. And this is a a shorter point here. What about God's commands? Well, Jesus perfectly obeyed God's commands. He fully submitted to the Father's will, even to the point of death. And he did it humbly, not seeking praise. He relinquished control to the Father, and he did it without excuse. And of all those commands followed by Christ, there was one that was the most extreme, 
one that he had a legitimate excuse not to follow. The atonement of sin through sacrifice. Hebrews 10 speaks of this. It speaks of the Old Testament law that called God's people to atone for their sins through sacrifice. But interestingly, the writer of Hebrews says that those sacrifices were never actually enough. Read with me from verse 4 onwards. He says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Christ said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And then the writer of Hebrews says in verse 10, And by that will, the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And we see then this great contrast between the two kings, the logic of the two kings. We see the deeper intentions of their hearts contrasted. Saul would try to perform unlawful sacrifices to earn favor for himself, whereas Christ would sacrifice himself to earn God's favor for us. What about God's promises? Well, in 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Jesus perfectly fulfills God's promises, even in this passage. He's a man after God's own heart, a, a prince over the people. He was committed to God and to the people, even when they were scattering from him. He was left alone on the cross. Such a stark contract, uh, contrast from us, isn't it? We're infected with this incessant, self-preservation and self-focus, trusting in ourselves and rejecting true, deep relationship with God. Sin is our biggest problem. But Jesus, he promises a cure to that problem for those who put their faith in him. Christ has a, a special eraser that he can take away all those permanent marker um, drawings on the, on the blueprint. If you're in Christ, you have God's favor. You don't have to earn it. We can set aside our logic, our way of trying to be perfect for our lives. We can take our hands off the blueprint. You don't need to seek praise from others because you already have God's acceptance. And you can relinquish control knowing that God's blueprint for your life is perfect. You can ask him to show you his plans instead. And lastly, you can admit your sinfulness without excuse, knowing that Christ has already totally secured your forgiveness. Why make excuses when your sins are already forgiven? And last one, simply, on God's focus. Well, the mere fact that God came as a man in Jesus Christ is a revelation that God's focus is on the heart. His willingness to come as one of us is proof that he wanted a real relationship with us. It's a good reminder going into the Christmas season. So let me conclude with this. The logic of God is completed for us in Christ. His everlasting kindness, mercy, and goodness towards those who do not deserve it is achieved through Christ's death and resurrection. And the irony of it is that it isn't logical at all. It does not make sense that God would save a people that did not deserve it. Who here can present a logical argument 
for why God should die for your rejection of his commands, your inability to remember his promises. Yet he did it anyways because he wants relationship with you. His blueprint for you is better than you can imagine. This, my friends, is the sweet, eternal logic of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The less you deserve it, the more you receive of it. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning and we want to surrender our hearts to you. Lord, we bring our our sins, we bring our blueprints, and we hand it, we push it across the table to you. We ask you to take it. We ask you to heal us. We ask you to show us your plans. Lord, we want to abandon our logic. We want to abandon our way of doing things. We want to accept your grace. We want to accept your plans for our lives. We want to draw nearer to the person of Jesus who sacrificed so much for us. Lord, once you reveal yourself to us this morning, for those in this room who do not know you, I pray that they would see the sweet, sweet logic of Jesus. They would see just how incredible it is to receive this gift, this free gift. Lord, I pray that you would speak this into our hearts this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.